I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. We are stateside today. We've dragged someone out of bed early, haven't we, Zach? We absolutely have. And you basically, you've spent the last 10 minutes talking football um, and, and trying to educate us. So I don't know if you just wanted this fellow on to, to talk football, but, you know. Well, this um, was a recommendation from the lovely Carolyn Day, who's like my best friend. Uh, who was obviously on ages ago now to talk about consumptive sheep. And she works at Furman, doesn't she? And she sent us one of her colleagues. Absolutely. So we are joined by Holly Pinero, an assistant professor at Furman University, who has a book called The Family's Civil War that's out soon from the University of Georgia Press. Holly, brilliant to see you. Welcome. I guess this is your first time on History Hack. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I was actually just going to give you a standing ovation for pronouncing my last name right. Like, <laughs> yes. I mean, yes. seriously. Like, I just felt like the idiot in the room for the last 10 minutes while we discussed the plight of Arsenal. But interestingly, <laughs> for our yeah, listeners, a few days ago, go. I said to Zach, I basically gave him a Tottenham insult and said, if anyone's ever talking about football and you don't, you don't understand just chuck that on the end because the chances are I mean pretty much everyone hates him unless they're actually a Tottenham fan and it worked didn't it it sure does no yeah this is great finally having my morning coffee so starting to wake up and been looking forward to this so thank y'all very much this is brilliant we're going to talk about African Americans in the U.S. Civil War aren't we yes right we haven't done Civil War for a while have we Zach we haven't. I've got to be honest. It's another one of those kind of areas. I think I'm just rubbish at American history after the War of Independence. Um, I'm, I'm very sorry, but we were, I was talking to Josh. All the red leave, and you're like, yeah, no, nothing really. <laughs> Follow them to Spain, don't you? We, we have a quick holiday over there for the War of 1812, and it all goes badly wrong. Um, and then we run away and never come back, and then rely on the Americans to bail us out of the World Wars. That's that's basically. Well, there the is actually said. a connection to black military service with uh, the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, because as you probably know, you know, black men fought. Um, and then revolution were on both sides. And in the post-war of those two instances, they're not going to receive the citizenship demands that the men in particular wanted. And you see that coming up in the Civil War when they're saying we've done this repeatedly and yeah. we, in the grand scheme, have been given nothing that we are promised. Yeah. In every war, you get this nonsense, though, don't you? You always get there's some marginalized group that thinks, hey, if we go and stick our oar in on this and help, yep. then we got a seat at the table at the end. And then it never works out. Yep. We're doing Poland in the first I mean, war at the moment. And you're actually getting into like a key, a key, sorry, a key point of like, because I'm trying to focus on these families mm. and the reasons why and why they wouldn't. And part of it is exactly what you said. We've heard this story, the song and dance before. We've seen the rhetoric is the same in some ways. So why? What's changed now? And obviously things have changed in very different dramatic ways. Yeah. So let's start. I mean, our, our audience is 25% American, which means they know what you're talking about already. Uh, everybody else, I'm talking about all the Brits here, are like, oh, yeah, there was a Civil War thing and a film with Matthew Broderick. Um, 
and then stuff happened and then it's and then gone with the wind and then the first world war so we need to fix that because that that's basically i'm not i'm not counting myself out of that group uh, we need to give our listeners kind of an overview of why i mean is it slavery is that why the us civil war breaks out so i can really this is like an essay myself. question isn't right. it like just I give mean, me a potted answer <laughs> I'd say first, like I've had the privilege of, you know, years ago doing presentations at the University of Liverpool, Nottingham, and also I think Lancaster University. And there was, um, to my surprise, an excitement, a genuine interest in my work and, and other scholars who are doing some excellent work. I think for me, um, first, it's the, the Civil War is part of a bigger story of these Black families' experiences. But in terms of Yes, Glory, the film you were referencing with Matthew Broderick, Morgan Freeman, uh, Denzel Washington. If you haven't seen it, it's amazing. I, I love it. I've seen it like a thousand times. I can quote it word for word, uh, which is sad when I say it out loud. But <laughs> watching, that good, film, baby. Yeah, watching that film, I can see how it. some of the topics that I talk about, you could actually connect it to that film. So, for example, for those who have or even haven't seen it, when the 54th Massachusetts in the film talks about tearing up their pay as a, you know, through a, the lens of gender and race, you know, they see it as a denigration of their manhood for being paid $3 less uh, for soldiers at the same rank because they're black. I try to complicate that and say, what about the families that have been writing these soldiers and are desperate for money? So that act of black masculinity has direct and immediate consequences to family members at home. In some ways, um, that continue for a long time. So it's it's important, I think, to, to look at the soldiers as people. So my work is looking at them from 1850 into the 1930s, um, which I'm happy to talk more about, but the Civil War is, is absolutely important. As other scholars know, it actually takes on um, international focuses. There's even a book called South to Freedom, which talks about um, black you know, enslaved people who run away to Mexico. Uh, and will actually gain their citizenship. And for me, I always thought they were going to Canada. Well, I was wrong. Um, so I think that there's amazing scholarship out there. Um, and obviously there's people even across the pond where you are, whether it's Emily West and, you know, Rebecca Fraser's work. So I think that that's the one great thing is there's so much new, innovative and important scholarship out there. Mm. Well, let's stay with that as a, a theme, because I'm interested in firstly whether or not there's a consensus mm. on the experiences of African-Americans during the conflict. But equally, you know, what are the areas of debate and what are the areas of contention? Because you know, every little sub subject has has its own kind of debates and, and tensions, and some of them are harmonious, and some of them really aren't. So, so what's the the story here? So I uh, probably I don't want to open Pandora's box, but I probably will. <laughs> uh, so part of it, I think, it depends on which this is a great question, what we're talking about. If I think one of the larger debates that continues to go on is whether we're talking about military, traditional, tactical history. Um, so I would even argue, you know, and the work of Tyler Perry, who has a book called Jumping the Broom, you know, he talks about the, the tactics of marriage, right? And you see that playing over when some of the soldiers I talk about, they uh, decide to get married on the same day they enlist. So that way their wives who might become widows, their children can get a pension. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's tactical decisions in there, whether we're also talking about uh, the tactics for the, the, the choice to enlist. Right. Like many scholars talk about, you know, going back to the 1800s about the important role that families played. So what I'm trying to argue with my book is a number of USCT soldiers later become historians, you know, not long after the war. And they will say in their introductions and their dedications that they're tired, that their stories are being omitted even amongst their own people, right? That um, one of the, the historians who becomes a president in uh, Kentucky will say that even, you know, our own people are forgetting the names of these great colored men, you know, say something like that. And, you know, Carter G. Woodson, he's hearing these stories as a young a person. So I'm trying to connect my work to talk about what soldiers who served in the war were talking about. They're talking about that the women in their lives were the most critical throughout the war, particularly the post-war. Um, there's a lot of great scholarship that's moved the conversations to talk about cultural citizenship, right? So this idea of national belonging, you could even connect it to Benedict Anderson and the Imagine Community conversation, which I do. Um, Robin D.G. Kelly does some great work in talking about infrapolitics, 
which is something I use within the lens of military service when we talk about disobedience, how through that disobedience, they're demonstrating agency, right? But I mean, it can be applied. I tell my students, essentially, they do infopolitics when they don't turn an assignment in on time, right? <laughs> <laughs> which happens. Um, but there's been some great scholarship um, in the recent history, whether it's uh, Tara Hunter, uh, Chandra Manning, um, Kelly Mazurak, and uh, James G. Mendez, which, and also Douglas Egerton, which have tried to, and done an exceptional job of pushing us, public discourse in general, to look at these soldiers as people, that they come from families, that they're men, uh, that they're sons, that they're brothers, like, and, and they're important. And for the most part, scholars, um, other than James Mendez and a few others, have looked at the freed experience because of the dramatic shift uh, that they go through. And it is important. I don't want to downplay that. Um, but I think what's been lost when we uh, hyper-focus on the freed experience, we're losing sight of the freeborn. And unfortunately, as you point out at the beginning, for most people's understanding of the, the free Black experience in the North, it's glory. Mm. And glory is not representative of the Black experience. I'm not going to argue mine. My, you know, people I study are representative. But by looking at places like Philadelphia, by even looking to the Midwest, by looking to New York City, to looking to these rural areas, uh, and let's say Pennsylvania, wherever, is that we can get a more nuanced story for how people in freedom, who never were enslaved, but maybe one generation removed from slavery, what were their motivations? What were their concerns? Who were they before they served? Who were, their, who were they in terms of family? Who was worried about them? Who was writing? Who was demanding like to remain connected? And then what happens generations later, once they've died, and a relative is asking for them or demanding, to be honest, to be remembered. So I'm trying to, I hope I do a job of it. Uh, good is trying to push the conversation. We have to talk about the daughters. We have to talk about the wives, the grandchildren, the neighbors, um, and the fact that in some cases, these soldiers are also as children living in white families. So they're actually, in the case of Philadelphia, living in interracial households which really throws a complication in if you know anything about Philadelphia's history in terms of racial violence in the 19th century, because it's historically very bad. So you're going looking for these stories um, yeah. and the stuff that you're uncovering when you when you do your research, you found some pretty harsh truths about this experience, haven't you? Yes. Yes. So, um, I mean, so to be honest, this was an extension of my dissertation and I was like looking at Civil War pension records. And I thought my, my pitch was like, I wanted to see how these soldiers who are free are talking about Juneteenth, are talking about the 13th, 14th, you know, these major moments, right? Emancipate. They don't talk about that in the pensions. And there's reasons, but what they talk about is unemployment. They talk about disability. They talk about the need for basically a federal social welfare program through the pension. They talk about um, what, who they were before the war, that they were in school, that's one of the soldiers talks about his entire class of young boys left and enlisted together, for example, right? So it's, or that they married. And then what happens after the war with some of the horrific disabilities? Um, so, you know, this is talking about the fact that families become informal nurses and doctors because of even the racism that these veterans will face in the post-war um, and how they're struggling to be remembered on a larger scale, right? So their local communities, their families, they remember their stories, but they're demanding that the federal government do it. And this totally spoils the end of my book. But um, I have uh, a daughter writing to Eleanor Roosevelt in the 1930s. And I could not believe this was in the record, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, and she says pretty much that I'm a poor black woman from Philadelphia. I understand there's so much happening in the world. You and your husband, president have done so much for this country and also for black people. Can you look into my mother's pension case because she's dying of cancer and we need money? Hmm. Eleanor responds in seven days. I can't get people now to respond to emails in two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and Eleanor demands that, they, that the VA, the Veterans Administration Affairs looks into it and they do. And then this daughter and the first lady are having letter correspondences talking about this daughter's uh, wanting to be remembered. And to me, it's so powerful. So even in the hardship, and there is a lot of tragic stories, there's also agency. And I see it more so um, with, the, with the next generation and also the children and the wives that they're saying, do not forget us. 
this lost or false calls uh, narrative, which is saying black soldiers and the black experience doesn't matter. They're saying you, you know, federal government, first lady in this case, don't forget us. And they don't. So even in the hardship, there's still some positive in terms of public memory. Why do you think it is that this hasn't come to light until now? Is this something that has traditionally been seen but pushed to the side in favour of things like, you know, you were alluding to before about kind of the glory narratives? Or is this something that there's just been a lack of inclination to look at because it is a troubling aspect of the USA's history? And so, you know, people don't want to have that difficult conversation around it. So part of it is people have been talking about it, right? Like, and and I'm saying even the soldiers who become historians, they do, but, and historians continue, whether we're talking Richard M. Reed, I mean, you name it, right? Like people will have a page, a paragraph, maybe a chapter where they'll talk about the thing, or it's woven into this bigger point they're making about whatever the, the, you know, the piece that they're doing is on. So it's like historians know that families were always there and important, but centering conversations on free black families for whatever reason, um, until James G. Mendez, because he's the first modern historian to make an entire book on this. And it's a great book. It's called uh, Great Sacrifice. Um, it's, it's exceptional. Um, and I kind of extend the conversation um, to say, we need to talk about every individual who lived in those homes, because I apply this term of fictive kin that others have used. Because um, I, I honestly started to think about my life experiences. I thought to myself, you know, there were a lot of times I crashed on a friend's couch uh, for six weeks or six days or whatever, because I was in a transition period or what, you know, and every time they opened their homes, right, they did that because they cared on some level for me. I didn't always provide for them financially, but there was some type of emotional connection, financial, whatever, but it wasn't a border, which is a term I used to use, right? This quid pro quo, there was some other reason. So by applying fictive kinship, I can broaden this conversation on what does a family mean? And how does the families experience the war? Also looking at the soldiers as people, which is so odd to say it like that, because it's, I'm the child of someone who served in the military. So there's also that layer to it as well. When my mother served for 25 years and people would say things like, thank you, you know, for your service, I often look at them and they don't say it to me, right? Because they're not, I don't think they're taking a moment to reflect on my mother's children, my, you know, my grandmother, the people who were very afraid for her safety, you know, the ones she's having, we're having to help her through her transition of unemployment after the war, like all these problems. And I'm thinking, why aren't we doing that? in this context with the civil war. So even though I'm talking about civil war era soldiers, it applies to even people today. When I've done these presentations, the people who are some of the most receptive are not historians, they're actually uh, military families. Cause they're like, you get it. You see that we're part of this story too. We've been excluded. And not even just in history, just in general public discourse, we seem to always be on the periphery when we've always been here, right? And I think I'm just trying to push that conversation more is if we look at these soldiers as sons, brothers, grandfather, you name it, and we look at them from childhood through their passing and long after, we understand deeper when they're making that decision to go, how they were actually fighting against racial discrimination every day of their lives. And that's really one of the key arguments for the book is historians, in my opinion, need to stop acting like the Civil War or Reconstruction or whatever was this defining moment in these people's lives, right? Or that this was the first time that they fought. I believe looking at their lives in totality is that we understand that they fought every day, whether it was in terms of housing, in terms of access or lack thereof to education, even public transit. And doing that, we then also can see the ways in which women were at the forefront in a lot of important ways. Um, So the story... The soldiers, in some ways, throughout the book, I don't want to say go to the back, but the women take the lead. And I wanted to make sure that that was visible, particularly when we talk about um, the decision for them to go, that the mothers and the wives, they go to the military camp all the time, and they want to keep that connection. Uh, and I, for whatever reason, you know, some scholars talk about it, um, but not enough, I feel like. One of the areas you've worked on 
is uh, it's a national holiday in the US. And mm-hmm. I've literally just Googled it while you're talking because it looks like a typo. Juneteenth. I have never heard of it. I don't think it's going right. to be familiar to the UK listeners. What is mm-hmm. it? And just briefly explain what's its significance? Well, so the very short version, Juneteenth uh, directly connects to the post immediate post-Civil War. Um, so when officially Robert E. Lee, um, you know, this guy whose statue just got removed, <laughs> when uh, Robert E. Lee uh, officially surrenders at Appomattox, which is also important to recognize black soldiers were at that surrender and they were responsible being part of a military contingent to chase Robert E. Lee to his surrender. But most people don't even want to talk about that. Right. So there's an example of the exclusion, you know, black military service. But in the case of a number of regiments, they will be stationed out in Texas. So parts of the Southwest. One of the reasons is because the military, the federal government believes that there's going to be a French invasion through Mexico with Napoleon III. So there's that. But also in parts of the Southwest, some slave owners are not informing their enslaved people that they have and are free. Right. So when the black soldiers get there, they will and some white soldiers, they will basically give that information like you are free. But then the black soldiers have to protect that freedom, because if they and when they leave, what's going to happen is in some ways, the old slave masters, the old oppressors will try to reinstitute an oppressive system. One of the things uh, why it's important to me anyway, is why it shows how how deeply entrenched um, white supremacy, the, the, the need to keep slavery going and to oppress black people in general. Like on top of that, it has evolved over time to be a way to talk about uh, black empowerment and not just on a United States scale, like it's actually become popular in some parts of the world, right? Um, and I think it's a way to take a horrible moment of oppression and spin it in a way that is of empowerment, which is something marginalized people do very well. Right. Like this may have been what it was, but this is what we're going to make of it. And we're going to make sure in this case, the United States does not forget what we've experienced. Right. Um, Though I do complicate that in a new article that I've written to talk about northern black soldiers. They in parts of Texas, they want to go home. They're tired. The war is officially over. They were told that they were fighting Confederates. They told that they had to fight Robert E. Lee. They did both. War's over. They're going to complain, why are we in Texas? We're, we're that, that's where they're going to get their most uh, issues of illnesses, disease. They're going to be fighting their own officers for clean water, clean food, right? So it's like, when, and their families are, are demanding, come home. And so when we add that layer of the family, of the soldiers being tired, it complicates the conversation about, Black freedom when we have black soldiers still being oppressed within the military at the exact same time. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. And this leads me on to, I mean, I know I've sort of facetiously said, you know, I don't understand any American history, but have, I have taught about particularly American policy and also about the huge struggle for civil rights in, in the latter half of the 20th uh, century, particularly. And to understand that, you have to understand things like the Jim Crow laws and what you're talking about, about how, you know, yes, you might see an end of slavery, but that does not mean equality by any means. So how much would you say really changes post-law? Because certainly to my mind, the fact that you abolish slavery, okay, it's a step, but it's uh, it's it's only a step on what becomes an incredibly long journey. Right. Uh, so I think, and many other scholars, you could probably see on the bookshelf behind me. Um, so Judith Giesberg, she has a book, Army at Home, uh, Kate Masser, a number of scholars have basically extend Hillary Green, have extended the conversation to talk about the long civil rights movement, 
right? And also Philip Foner has done it as well to even look at during the Civil War era, sit-ins occurred. Uh, what I mean by that is with, especially once uh, USCT, United States Colored Troop enlistment begins in places like Philadelphia where I focus, um, but also New York City is that um, black people, particularly black women will be tired of being put in what they call quote, the Negro car end quote, which were racially segregated or sometimes on an exposed platform uh, where people unfortunately in some instances um, did die or were removed forcefully. They'll say, we're here supporting the United States. We're here supporting these soldiers. We are being patriotic in the ways that white people are, yet we're still being racially discriminated on forms of public transportation. And as Judith Giesberg and others know, these black women will actually take up legal suits uh, in civil court against you know, the conductor and like different companies to demand for equality because they're saying we're giving literally our family, their lives, our everything to this country, and yet we can't even go to support them. And that to me is an important conversation that then shows how someone like Rosa Parks or Medgar Evers, or you name it, is actually part of this longer, richer, like civil rights activism. And one could even say that goes back even before I'm talking. Uh, so I think for me, it would say the, you know, I would say the modern civil rights era movement versus, you know, this longer one. I, without question, the civil war changes everything um, for Native Americans, for African-Americans, uh, for white people in general. As you point out, slavery ends, but racial discrimination does not. I think the most powerful thing, and I'm trying to convey in the book, particularly once the war is over, is that these people who are part of a larger struggle never give up. Because this is what I tell my students all the time, which I guess is really depressing. I don't know if I could keep enduring. Like, you know, like I, I'm very cynical. So at some point, like, yay, this is ended. But why is this still happening? Why am I still oppressed? Why is economic issues? Why, 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 why? And at some point, I would have just got burnt out and just whatever. But these people don't. And military service is connected to civil rights activism in the United States, not just during the Civil War era, but much later as well. Um, and I think that's also an important connection to complicate when people talk about military service for all its oppressive aspects, which it has a lot, is that it does empower some individuals to use how they've redefined themselves whether it's domestically or internationally, if we're talking about the world wars and they come home different and they want to be seen different because they've given and they want and they will demand. And I think that's an important aspect of when we talk about military services in a you know, longer context is it does provide, even with all its problems, opportunities for empowerment, which is actually one of the things I'm going to do with my second book. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Which is really interesting and also kind of integral to that is what you've touched on already, which is these ideas of agency. And the whole point about military service is that we have this perception, and to an extent it's true, of person gives order, you blindly obey. Yep. But the yep. reality of command and control is that it's a conversation. And yep. if you're going to use the stick the whole time, that's that's not going to be conducive to a good style of leadership. And eventually somebody's going to turn around and bite you for it. So what you tend to see, and, and apologies, boss, I'm going off on one. No, it's cool. and unfortunately for our listeners, there are there are three military historians in the room that are going from 
uh, Napoleonic <laughs> through American Civil War to World War One, um, and we're, we're rabbit holding now. You're doomed, guys. <laughs> Put your feet up. This is going to go on for a while. <laughs> you know so what? I'm not even sorry. Me neither. Oh, sorry, Zach. Go ahead. No, but it, it, this is really important, isn't it? That there. And I'm thinking particularly about the work that I'm sort of starting to move into about looking at ethnic minority troops in the British Army, where actually, on the one hand, yes, there are unquestionably racist attitudes. But on the other hand, there is an acceptance that you need to listen to what these guys need. And so that, in a sense, perhaps was empowering for the folks that you're looking at. I think to your point, um, in terms of like, I, you know, I always try to talk about even within systems of oppression, how people are not submissive to it, whether it's small acts, because, you know, and I'm thinking more so my students, I had a discussion yesterday about the Stonehill Rebellion, right? Another, and they want like large scale revolts. And I'm like, that's not as easy as you think versus more day-to-day subtle acts of disobedience where you're playing the system off um, to get, even if it's a momentary change, it's still, you got recognized with that change. To your point, I think the thing that I saw that was compelling in my work for the first book is how the military will eventually, in some instances, and I really mean like some commanding officers, not universally, will recognize the importance of families because at least one officer will start to write um, furloughs to married, for married men to go home. And he will specifically say they, they need to go home. They need to see their family. So clearly there was a demand or at least a request repeatedly um, one of the when one soldier will die, a commanding officer will write a letter to the widow and say, keep this document. So when you apply for a pension. So even those instances are showing that there is compassion, is that there is a humanity to it. Because when we some people talk in military service, it's like they don't want to add the human element to it, which is odd. Because it hurts. <laughs> That's why. It's because it makes <laughs> them sad. And it's like, well, it, it's war. It, it's right. shit. Sorry. Well, I think, yeah. well, the other thing is, and I'm trying to push the conversation in terms of, you know, to this point of uh, Drew Gilpin Faust talks about um, the good death, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how this kind of, the, the kind of formula, or escape, the word escapes me on how people talked about um, someone who died to relay the information to a family. Um, and the one thing that I see with these, because there is an example for one of my soldiers, is that through the deaths of these soldiers, which is really sad to say, is that some black families get to be part of this national mourning because they're giving in the same context as white families in this case, who are also grieving. Um, And I think that's an important point is that they're grieving. They're also excited. They're family members, they're people. Um, And I think, you know, the military, if anyone reads my book and you're wanting like this battle happened at this point, you're not going to get that. But what you will get is soldiers talking about, for example, one soldier will write his mother and say, I want to go to battle. He'll say Confederates are cowards because they keep running away. I just want to fight. Well, he'll get his wish and he'll die. Mm. And now his family will never be the same. And for the next 30 years, you see how they are still struggling with his death. And I think that's what's one of the most compelling things. If we go generation after the war, how are the families still dealing with the consequences of the battle? And now they're in a different kind of battle in terms of trying to get accessibility to the pensions, which is in itself to me, one of the most important aspects. How do we even define a battle? Because Mm -hmm. when a mother and a wife is trying to prove their quote, legitimate, unquote, they're, they're trying, they're demanding, you see me the way I and my community sees me. And the Mm -hmm. federal government does not always agree. I think one of the saddest things I've ever seen with the World War One stuff is um, so I was I did a book on Eton College in the First World War. And there was so all of the boys that used to go to the school, if they served together, they were kind of like a unit within a unit that it right. meant something to them. And one of them had died in a unit that was quite heavy with ex boys from this school. And uh, it was the fire attack at Hoogar. So, I mean, he got lit up by a flamethrower. But of course, the rhetoric that you give people, like I can't tell you how many soldiers, how many letters from commanding officers and that they were always shot through the heart and died instantly, died with a smile on their face um, or they were hit in the head and felt no pain. And it's bullshit. We know it's bullshit in a lot of cases. So this guy was killed by a flamethrower and they'd written to the mother and they'd given her that rhetoric and her fixation was his revolver. I want it back. 
I, I want his revolver. I want something to remember my baby by. And they're kind of like, they're like, shit, how do we approach this? Um, I'm, we don't quite know where it is. I'm really sorry, but um, it was it was quite frantic. It was a busy day um, and we don't know where his, his revolver is and she won't drop it and she keeps writing. And she's like, but I don't understand. I mean, I don't understand why you can't just remove it from him and send it to me. And the final letter that goes, it's down to a guy who's actually a teacher at the school. And it's just, it's firm on the verge of cruel, but it's having to tell her, we lost half our unit that day. We don't know where they're buried. There's nothing left of a lot of them. And I'm afraid it's gone. We don't, we don't even know where he is. You're not gonna have a grave to go to. Um, wow. So I'm afraid that we don't know where it is and we can't give it to you. And it's not because we don't care and we don't want to, but this is why it can't happen. And that's what's really interesting to me is like how the responses of people who are at the home front and just don't get it. She just does not get it. I mean, you literally are hitting on like the good death one, but then also aspects of my book, right? Like she's demanding to be heard. Yeah. She and she is persistent, right? Yeah. Like, and as she and they 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 can't avoid this, right? Like, no. I mean, they could, right? But she won't let them. And I think that to me. It, that agency is inspiring. Like, cause even in some of the examples of the work I'm doing, it kind of has those stories where it doesn't end well. The case is rejected or it's, you know, it's abandoned and it's like on one level, I'm like, oh, on the other, I'm looking at it. What does it say that this mother in your example will not stop, that she wants this connection and that she has this story documented? That is really powerful. And it gives a sense of, 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 agency of control you know she's you know it also highlights she's still struggling with his passing long after it's over in ways that to me go beyond just talking about the battle right she was in a battle for that not just the, the you know the weapon but like to be for him to be remembered and in a roundabout way she got it but maybe not the way she wanted yeah. it I mean, what's interesting is a letter from the yeah. one she was hammering to the teacher who finally takes care of her and, right. and kind of spells it out in a way that's brutal enough without being cruel. Um, right. Says, you need to fucking deal with her because I can't take anymore. I don't know what to say to her. Right. I don't know what to say. And there's also um, from the same school. Uh, so this is like a but within the family, this is believed to be the case, but it was never intended to put the ages on the Commonwealth war graves um, of the men that had died. And Lady Minto, allegedly, so her 23-year-old son was killed at Passchendaele um, and it broke her. She mm. was, he was her everything um, and they weren't going to do it. And she lost her shit. And she was a lady in waiting to Queen Mary. So she had a voice, she had agency. And she just said, when people look at these stones, it's not the same if they don't look at the ages and see that they were babies and that they had their whole lives ahead of them, that they were 19, 20, 21, 23, like my boy. And that is apparently why the ages are on there. Wow. So, I, I mean, that to me, like the, the parts where I think my book is really, I hope, going to push conversations is that the earlier chapters and then once the war is over and even like the middle points are really important because you see how families were always there and the, the issues with pay and but it's like painting this deeper story of these soldiers as children right whether they went to school or not you know some of them um, and a number of them actually had mothers who were single women that were had real estate had jobs and were taking care of their household which flied at the time you know in direct contradiction to traditional gender roles and you know there's just these really compelling stories that if you connect it to later at the end of the books when i'm talking about you know in some cases they're still living with people that were their fictive kin that you know, these people have been married and recognized as such in their local communities. But when it comes time for a pension, they're going to be penalized because they're not doing the legal respectable thing of getting that. Uh, and, and you see it, unfortunately, whether we're talking about their offspring, but also in one of the cases, it's so tragic. Um, she she will have a she will her her veteran husband will pass and she's demanding a pension and the pension bureau will say, well, you had this child before you married him, if we can even prove that. Um, and we want you to tell us about 
the circumstances of that child. Like how, how did it happen? So she has to tell about like a committee about the first sexual experience that she has. And she, it's, I don't need to know it, right? Like it's to me, I'm like, why? And yeah. she basically says, all right, you want the story? I'm gonna give you the story. And she tells it and, and her, the thing to me that was so powerful was her matter of fact in the, the way she says it, right? Mm. That she's like, it happened in Atlantic City on this date with this guy. And that's all there is to say about it, period. Right. And it's like on one level, I'm like, whoa. But at the same time, I'm looking at it going, she's like, all right, I'm going to make you uncomfortable and you're going to hear this. It was like that Californian uh, nominee for, is he nominee for governor? The one that was saying it was okay to say, to quiz a woman in a job interview about if she intended to have kids and when she intended to have kids. And I was like, well, if he's going to ask like questions about her uterus, then she gets to ask him how often he has sex and whether it affects his job. I mean, the, the, the invade. So the one thing I try to, and a number of other scholars have done this, Donald Schaefer and, and many others is I want to, um, leaning on their work is say that families are going, going to go to war with the federal government in terms of pensions, in terms of being remembered. Um, widows uh, are going to have to, if they're legally married and recognized as such, like, first of all, they have to provide a certificate or some type of documentation. And sometimes when they do it, they never get back their the wedding like certificate. And they'll say, wait a minute, that's my only record of our marriage. I want it back. Yeah. Pension Bureau is like, nope, it's now part of federal records now. And they'll get real, rightfully so very pissed off. And it's like, there's already just like a, so I have to prove myself to you, but in doing so, you strip away the one piece of that I still have of our union. Yeah. Others um, who were, Common law uh, marriages, they're going to have issues because in the South um, and former Confederate states where slavery existed, the Pension Bureau will have policies that will basically allow for those who had a common law marriage um, to get a pension. But no such policy existed in places like Pennsylvania. So they're actually going to be penalized for being free and not getting a legal marriage. And this will jeopardize many family members and particularly children. I mean, it's my book opens up with one of the most shocking quotes I've ever seen uh, about the Civil War. It's Mary Williamson. And I track this family. It's Benjamin Davis and Mary Williamson. Um, And she says in 1884 to a pension bureau agent, you, the federal government, stole my family, stole my husband. And we have never been the same when he enlisted. I haven't seen my son. I have nothing. Right. And I'm just like, when I talk about, you know, previously the civil war, I'm looking at it from this, you know, emancipationist and even through the hardship, like still freedom. She's like, I don't want to talk about that. Yeah. I want to talk about what you stole from me. Cause uh, Benjamin will also try to enlist in the, the regiment that was part of glory, the 54th. He will get a staph infection along the way and miss out on enlisting. But he also does it at the exact same time that she's about to give birth to their only son, Jerome. So it's like, even there is a, what matters more patriotism or his family. In that instance, you could say he's seeing it as an avenue for like patriotism. Maybe it's um, access to regulated wage, but still he's not there for his child. He will then, Benjamin will demand that Mary later give up their child, Jerome, as he enlists in the 6th United States Colonial Infantry, because he'll claim that she's an irresponsible woman because she's too young, which I'm like, well, then why were you with her? Uh, (laughs) But she will, before giving up guardianship to Benjamin's uh, grandparents, she'll bring the child to Camp William Penn and she'll demand in front of other soldiers that that Jerome is their child. And the soldier- You make him, you make him uncomfortable and i mean yeah and then the the, the what to me one of the most wildest parts is that veterans years later remembered it they were like yeah, yeah. we were there it was weird yeah but it's like <laughs> and and i mean the story their story is really tragic because like she never sees her child again uh benjamin will die as a prisoner of war uh, in virginia because he refuses to dig a ditch because he sees it as a denigration of his manhood uh, he refuses to do the same work um, that he would envision enslaved people would do. Yeah. I mean, it's like there's so many layers of complication with just this one family. 
that brings to light this is what their reality was. Right? This is not to dismiss the enslaved experience or all these other important stories, but it is long overdue to resituate conversations on free Black families who have hardships and freedom, particularly because of racial discrimination, is so pervasive and they never give up. One, you've talked a lot today about the pension records, which just yes. sound amazing and like I, I don't know how you get anything done you'd just be there all day wouldn't you just like soaking it up um censuses must census returns must be so important to you as well aren't they they're that snapshot of where everybody is and who's living with who and how it works and who the lodges are and whether they're taking people in and I mean I don't know if they're like the UK ones they're quite similar aren't they they tell you how many rooms there are in the house they tell you who's got an education they tell you where everyone was born you can tell if they're first second generation they must be a gold mine for you yeah the the I love the census because I mean on one layer they can look rather dry right you just have this like long sheet with marks and whatever but what I've like you said I've been able to find out marriages yeah. Whether they education, right? Did they go to school at the time? As by after 1880, the census will start to do, talk about disabilities. Um, you know, the even in much later in the 1900s, it'll even talk about you know where they were born, you know, family connections. But what I saw using the pensions, one thing that I'm sorry, the the census that doesn't come through the pension, is that a number of these soldiers were related because I kept seeing names yeah. in people's pensions. I'm like, why do I keep seeing these? And because it turns of out, course, like, their census tells you their relationship to the head of the household. Exactly. So, so I found using the census that like three soldiers as young children, like they were brother and, and a cousin, they all lived together. So I'm like, now that makes sense. And yeah. you see it in the post-war, how one of them got divorced, how like he was struggling economically. So he had to live with his brother. And I mean, it's just like there's really yeah. compelling stories when you combine pensions, which are phenomenal. You know, the. the the great but crappy thing about a pension is you never know what's in the record until you get them. Yeah. Sometimes there are two pages. I have one that's like 800. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I love them because when you start looking at who's giving testimony, where are they from? And usually what happens is things like this. If the case is about Zach, I'll be like, all right, yeah, I'm gonna tell you about Zach. I knew him at this point. But anyway, just so you know, here's my story. Uh, and I want to tell you, because this is the one moment where some people will t- start to shed light on the black community in ways that I was not anticipating. Yeah. It's amazing. I, I just, I was doing, actually was doing something for an American friend. He, he's white, but his family were German in origin and his mom mm-hmm. and him are doing their family history. They were in lockdown because they were bored and they couldn't figure out how this was all fitting in and why this address was cropping up and why these kids switched towns. And it was yeah, like, yeah. when you apply the lateral thinking to a census churn, I was like, yeah, I'm telling you now, they were so dirt poor that they've given the kids to family to look after because the parents I mean, vanish and there they are living with some distant cousin in another town. To your point with the census, the other thing I found was some of the mothers of these future soldiers were land-owning women, which is really shocking given Philadelphia um, was not the most uh, accessible for Black women to have access to real estate, but they do. And understanding that, and that some were like dressmakers and very successful business women, which is part of the story of helps to shape the identity of their children who will later enlist in the war. So putting those things into context, it helps me go, why would this one soldier leave? He actually has, he comes from a family that, you know, I want to say is wealthy, but they're, they're doing, you know, they're not working poor. So what is his motivations to come? I would also say connecting it to compiled military service records. That's where you get the cases of disobedience, but that's also where I found the, the commanding officers writing for furloughs or talking about, you know, the fact that some of these soldiers weren't paid for nine months. So when we talk about disobedience, when I'm really saying agency, because to Zach's point earlier about, you know, there is this tension. If I haven't been paid in nine months, I don't care yeah. where I'm working. I'm quitting the job. Like that's just I'm preaching like, that's to Zach now because his guys in Napoleon in the Peninsula Wars and stuff, they're like they're starving. They get done for they, robbing, yet they're not being. So yeah, and I think like adding that on top of that, if you, we layer who their family is, now we understand why some soldiers are like, look, I got seven people back home who are dependent on this. The federal government promised me a bounty. They promised me a monthly wage. It's been nine months. Yeah, I'm done. Contract is void. Because I would agree that it's over. Mm. Hell yeah. 
I think three days past a payday and I'm out. <laughs> I'm, I'm resisting the temptation to start banging on about the Pogonic stuff because I see so many parallels. With... <laughs> you know what? I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to visit Carolyn soon in Greenville. I'm bringing Zach and we're going out okay. drinking and we're just going to do this to death in a bar. We're just going to... All the stuff we wish we could get into this one-hour podcast. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. Like a nine-hour session in a bar somewhere. I think that's what's great is that there are so many connections to other... I mean, that's to me when I hope with, you know, even if people aren't necessarily interested in maybe the civil war, it's the methods, right? Like, you can take this from Napoleon, any, I think, you know, war, war conflict, and let's add the layer of who are they? I always joke that Jerry Seinfeld, who are these people? Right? But like, <laughs> who are they? And, and understanding that we can better understand how they mourn, how they're fighting to be remembered, how when they have forms of disobedience, like there's so much more depth to it. It's not, well, this soldier is just talking back. Well, maybe it's because he's being told to do work that he sees as beneath him. He was an engine. One of my guys was an engineer before the war. I'm like, you made great money. Now you're telling him to dig a ditch. That's not what Frederick Douglass said that he was going to do when they said to campaign. So it's a denigration of their manhood. It's, it's just fascinating because it's also so interesting to see the transition from my point in history to Alex's through yours. And I can mm -hmm. see sort of the earliest kind of murmurings of what comes to the fore in, in Alex's work yeah. appearing in your work that really isn't there in, in mine. It's, we've thrown the script in the bin. I'm not yeah, there is no script. What script? We've had a great time. If anyone is still listening to this, all power to you because we didn't care about you at all today. We've just we've just gone off on our own thing, the three of us, and we've enjoyed it massively. Yes, thank you all so much. It's been brilliant. Holly, thank you. Tell everybody again the title of the book. Uh, so it is The Family Civil War. Uh, the subtitle right now is uh, Northern African-American Soldiers and Their Fight for Racial Justice. It should be out uh, June of 2022. Pre-order link hopefully out in January or February Amazing. with the University of Georgia Press. Cool. Well, we cannot wait that long to air this. It's going out in <laughs> September, but we will air it again when the book comes out. And we'll Thank take you. everybody in and we will put it in our online bookshop. You have been amazing. Come back anytime. Thank you and go Arsenal. <laughs> oh, bless and can you. I just say to round things off the thing that Alex taught me fuck Tottenham there you go woo <laughs> everybody agrees <laughs> thank y'all when our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts so to this end we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.